Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Dave, we are back for episode 58 for Plastic Model Mojo. We're even enjoying some uh, almost spring-like weather here in central Kentucky. I'm telling you what, it's spring has sprung. No, it hasn't. It'll roll back one more time at least. Yeah, that's 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 probably true. Hey, as long as we don't get another snowstorm, I'll be happy. Well, we got a really bad one this, this week. Uh, several years ago, the week my wife went to New Zealand. Yeah. In February, it snowed like crazy, like a foot or more. Yeah. Well, I tell you, it's been busy around my place, probably yours too, but uh, what's going on in Dave's model sphere in the last two weeks? You know, as the spring thaw comes on slowly, reluctantly, my model sphere is slowly thawing out. Progress is being made, not as much as I want. But things are moving along. I'm also starting to get some of my model-adjacent stuff moving again. I'm getting more chance to uh, read books, uh, read modeling magazines. There's been a lot of good stuff modeling-related on YouTube yet. So it's, it's kind of coming out of that dark time that happens in the winter. And slowly, life is returning. Now... You know, once spring hits full time, there will be yard work. There will be a lot of other stuff to distract from modeling. So I intend to make hay while the sun shines or almost shines. How about you? Well, I've been given a lot of thought and trying to change some habits around here and try to get a better balance of uh, my hobby time and the, the rest of my life outside of my job. So you've decided to quit your job and you're going to do the hobby full time? Uh, no. Okay. I've not decided that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Robin appreciates that. I'm sure. I, well, I hope she does. I, I There's plenty to do around here. And as much as I like coming down here and doing what I do all the time, I'd like to come down here and do it. Uh, still, I don't need to really disappear and down here at like 6 p.m. at night and coming to bed after everybody else has gone <laughs> to bed. I mean, yes. Yeah. That's just not the way to do it for, for this house anyway. And probably several other houses out there listening. Yes. And then there's this matter of this Plastic Posse podcast wager that we, we willfully lost. Yes. And Well, uh, it's $100 to a good cause. I mean, it, you know. it is. And uh, we're, we need to get caught up with Scott because I know, I guess, last weekend he wanted to try to get together and, and do a segment for his show with us and uh, rub our noses in it, I guess. <laughs> But uh, multiple swim season or multiple swim meets for me and volleyball for you. And yeah, we just couldn't get it done. So, Scott, don't we haven't forgotten. Please reach out again or I will. And uh, we'll, we'll work that out. Yeah, we'll get together and we'll take our beating. That's right. And swim season on that note is coming to an end rapidly. So that that one distraction will be less. I'm sure something. Well, no, maybe not. I've, I've got a high school senior, though. So there's a lot of stuff going on. But uh, Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, uh, swim team won't won't be one of it. And he's about got all his college uh, stuff done, so good on him. And maybe we can take a take a a breath after all that. But that's what's been going on in the model sphere. 
outside of the workbench. Well, good. Since we're sitting here doing the podcast, I'm assuming that you have a modeling fluid within arm's reach. Less than an arm's reach. I heard ice. <laughs> I, I do, Dave. And uh, this one's going to be a little unusual. Uh, I'm drinking uh, Last Feather Rye Whiskey. Ooh, a rye. From Journeyman Distillery in Three Oaks, Michigan. Hmm. So how did you come by that? If you remember this time last year, well, January last year, I, we lost a good friend in our little social circle here in Lexington. Yeah. And uh, Danny, Danny Faulkner. And Danny was a real big advocate and volunteer with the uh, Special Olympics of the Bluegrass. I think that's right. Yeah. They do a fundraiser every year, Polar Bear Plunge, where they fill up a above ground pool outside uh, one of the local restaurants here in the middle of January. And uh. everybody jumps in. Who's volunteered to jump in? But anyway, uh, a lot of the extended family from uh, Danny's wife were down here. And uh, Mark, her, her brother-in-law, another engineer. So we kind of can talk a lot of, about a lot of stuff And when, we're, when he's around. He's been around a lot since Danny passed, uh, which is good for, for the family. But anyway, he, he knew I was enjoying bourbons and whiskeys. And he brought uh, me and uh, one of the other fellas in our social group, Russ, uh, each a bottle of this uh, Last Feather Rye Whiskey. Ryes to me are interesting. I don't tend to like them as much as bourbons, but uh, I've had some good ones, so I'll be interested when we get to the end here uh, to find out what you think of this one. Well, what do you got going on? Well, I've got nothing quite so sophisticated. I have Yingling traditional lager mass well it's not exactly mass market american beer i mean it's it's mass market but it's not uh bud light or miller light or something like that yingling is a you know it's the oldest continuously operating brewery in the in the united states owned by the same family since the beginning they do a good beer uh it's it's not something that I would want to drink every day. Once you get used to craft beers and the fact that they're, you know, they have more body, Yingling tends to be a little bit light, kind of like drinking water. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes when it gets me through the episode, but right. I'll let you know. But yeah, nothing so high end is what you're doing. Well, I don't know what I've got's high end, but it's certainly nothing I would have probably tried on my own. So I thank Mark for gifting me the bottle and uh we'll shake it out at the end dave all right all right anybody mailing us oh my goodness i, I think we've got a record i think we've got 14 oh god <laughs> no three-hour tours we're gonna have to cut through these uh that, well some of them are short and, and succinct so it's it's not gonna be so bad uh just one comment before we get into it i mean it's one a day since we dropped the last episode yeah which ain't bad. No, not at all. On average, once a day. Yep. Well, let's get into it because it's a lot and we got to okay. get rolling. <laughs> you got it. First up is Michael Maxwell, and he is from somewhere in Canada. Now, he makes reference to a show in Saskatchewan. So I don't know how far you're going to drive for a model show. So I assume he's in a commutable distance to this town in Saskatchewan. Gotcha. We'll leave it at that for now till we get to the show. Get to the show part. 
Uh, he's 38 and, uh, he kind of modeled with his dad for a while and RC cars. And then he got into Warhammer when he was 13 and kind of dropped the scale stuff. But, uh, on a whim, he started watching and build videos on YouTube, like uh, Andy's hobby headquarters, which is a, a recurring, a recurring, uh, reference when, it, for, especially from these folks who are getting back into the hobby. I think Andy's yeah. channel has a, a, an appeal. Uh, somebody said it while we were in, in Las Vegas, a very approachable, down to earth yeah. kind of a vibe to his videos and uh, not so grandiose and uh, quote unquote expert level kind of stuff necessarily. Yeah. No, I, I think that you're right that he puts out a very approachable product. Anyway, he was looking for an IPMS chapter or possible events to attend. And it turns out there's an event called uh, BridgeCon a couple of hours away from me. So that answers that question. In uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan on May 7th, 2002. Did I say that right? That's the way it's I, spelled. I, I think that's the way it's it's pronounced. Uh, I'm sure our buddies up in Ottawa uh, <laughs> will, will help us out with that. That's right. So May 7th, BridgeCon in uh, Saskatchewan. So a couple hours. That's not too bad. That, that's a, that's that's well inside our radius, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was talking with Jim today about how in the U.S., we think nothing of, of going six or seven hours for a model contest, whereas places in Europe, three hours is considered a long distance. Well, he's asking about shows in general because right? he's never been to one. You know, he's got a lot of wargaming painting experience and uh, painting bus and that sort of thing. But he wants to know if there is there a happy medium for artistic license versus realism when it comes to judging at scale model contests. He says he's familiar with the gaming world. And he's naturally inclined to incorporate more artistic license in his projects. And he's learning a lot in scale modeling. He thinks he can port over to the gaming world. And he feels like there's some stuff from the gaming side that can come back the other way, which that's a, that's a point I might talk on a little bit after this. But I tell you, my experience, it, it shows typically uh, you can you can disagree, Dave, but there's probably a limit to the artistic license approaching you know, historical accuracy yes, at, at I, most shows. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it depends on what you're building. I think if you're doing figures, I think if you're doing sci-fi, I even think if you're doing automotive, that artistic license is probably more accepted in the by the judging community, whereas I think that aircraft and armor you tend to your your quote unquote artistic license is limited by the fact that those genres tend to have historical accuracy kind of built into even if it's unspoken built into the judging criteria so like if if he goes and he enters warhammer figures in in a in the fantasy category of the figures, I think they'll be judged exactly as if it was a Warhammer contest. Uh, you know, that that type of artistic license is accepted. I just don't know that it stretches over much into the real military side. And I guess it would depend on how you define what your, what your boundary is for artistic license. I mean, a, a lot of these avant-garde weathering techniques could be considered artistic yes. license, right? True, but, true but enough. I, but, but I think, I think you're right. I think 
you know, the other categories are kind of historically bound and some of that painting technique and weathering, what have you, is kind of, kind of a next level inside of that. That's kind of, if it's historically accurate in the sense of the markings and the paint scheme, et cetera, uh, the next level into that is the next circle in is, is how you rendered the finish on it. And there certainly are some artistic license there, but uh, I mean, if you put some completely, you put national markings on a tank that it, it never was owned by or, or for whatever, it's just something like that. Then right. that's, that's going to be, that's going to be a different, different animal there. And I think that's going to be considered maybe more of a ding than, than a plus. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Now he goes on with another topic and I, I we talked about this with, with uh, Dr. Miller, Dr. Strangebrush, uh, about, you know, some paint mules kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Cheaper kits to practice on. And he he bought several cheap kits. And he, he picked up a couple. Now he's not so sure he should practice on or not. There are a couple of old 72nd scale biplanes, but they're, they're old Airfix biplanes in the early pre round logo airfix boxes. Mm-hmm. I, I think looking at them, they're from the, maybe the craft master, the North American boxing of those kits. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's just craft master exactly. or something down under the, under the title of the, of the yeah. subject. Uh, he's wants to know if he should save them for a collector or build them as intended. And I'd say build them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd say that's up to you. I have no idea. I know there are some, kits that are very collectible and particularly certain boxings of certain kits that are, but in general, most model kits, um, especially mass market model kits aren't really very collectible. Uh, you know, there are certainly collectors who, who don't build or build, don't build much and they do want, older things from their childhood in the boxings that they remember them. So there's some of that, but in general, with some rare exceptions, I don't think a lot of the, the mass market models from the sixties, seventies and eighties are, are super valuable. Well, these are certainly from the sixties in the box they're in. Yeah. Maybe the early seventies. I'm not completely familiar with air fixes. Box variations, but uh, that's a whole collector's kind of kind of thing. Oh yeah, there, there's a collector's guide out there that talks all about that. Well, he should maybe check into that. He may have yeah. something that we're not aware of. No, some of those some of those kits, Airfix has never re- reissued are are kind of valuable. I don't know if these World War One biplanes are among them. They could be, but I don't think they are. Yeah, uh, probably worth looking at. Yep. They, luckily, there's the internet out there, and you can Google away. Uh, show announcement from uh, Jeff Keenan and Jeff's from Buffalo, New York. Insert snow jokes here. He says <laughs> he's trained for half marathon and gets lots of quote windshield time at work as well. So that's when he's listening to the podcast. He likes building Bandai star Wars and 72nd scale aircraft, especially helicopters. Those Bandai star Wars kits are amazing. Well, his reason for writing is uh, he wants to plug a show to be held Sunday, 3rd of April of this year. And that would be IPMS uh, Niagara Frontier, which is an old show. Yes. That's a long-established show. Now, has it always been on Sunday? Uh, yeah. 
this 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 is that thing that you and I have talked about in the area from Cleveland to Buffalo up to Heritage Con. In that area of the world, for some reason, model shows are Sunday, not Saturday. And I have no idea why. Well, I suspect the population density is such that uh, they don't have a, a huge number of long distance commuters. That may well be the case. That may be well may well be what it is. But uh, it just does seem that shows in that general area tend to tend to run on Sunday rather than Saturday. If you're in the Buffalo Greater Buffalo area on April third of this year, uh, please check out IPMS Niagara Frontier again. That's a that's a long established show. I mean, that's yes. I've been seeing Niagara Frontier ever since I've been in scale modeling. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely, and I would love to get up to to that show sometime. And he closes saying, "Getting a new episode notification is like a mini Christmas gift." Well, Jeff, thank you for being a listener. <laughs> thank you. Yes, that's very, very, very kind. Another Jeff from uh, Fort Worth, Texas, Jeff Kellerman. Oh, he's he wrote in about the KV versus JS tracks, and uh, he found the answer on the forbiogreen.com website, which is uh, Neil Stokes website author of the cave big bread kv book yes a uh, couple tra- couple of track configurations were the same for both vehicles so oh well leave it to the russians i mean uh, you know recycle renew reuse exactly <laughs> i should have thought of that that's a good point to go check out 4bo green greg williams from alexandria ohio now is this the guy who wrote in before who Joined IPMS at your request? Maybe. I uh, Sadly, I've lost track of the number of people that have done that, but I appreciate all of you who have. He wants to know if we've seen Plasmo's P51 build, because, you know, we, along with just about all the other podcasts, end up dropping Night Shift several episodes a year. Yeah. As, as, a, as a reference. Yeah. And uh, he wants to know if, if we also follow Plasmo. I do. Oh yeah, uh, I like Plasmo. Uh, I think he does a lot of a really cool small scale stuff, seventy yeah. second scale. He makes a point that uh, that that I've I've said before on this podcast early on, like our first four or five episodes, probably that he seems fearless to try anything. Yeah, and uh, you know he's made me nervous watching him with a razor saw. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, okay, this is where he cuts the top of his thumb off. Do you watch Plasmo much? Again, small scale. Seventy uh, second scale. That is one of the things that uh, attracts me to that channel. I can't say that I've seen every video, but I do. I do watch. In fact, even I. I go back through old catalog. Uh, I've been through uh, a fair piece of Evans' old catalog. I've been through Night Shift's entire old catalog, and Plasmo is definitely one of the ones that is a. Uh, uh, don't miss it because you, you, if nothing else, it's like going to a Penn and Teller show. You're waiting for the, for the accident to happen and the blood to start flowing. And then, <laughs> then you just hope like, like Penn and Teller, it's a magic trick. All right. So next up, Rich Long from Cookville, Tennessee. Now he's the one who wrote in last time about having a toddler in the house. And he says the dog with opposable thumbs yeah. <laughs> made him laugh. So, <laughs> well, good. Cause I think that's a good way to describe it. <laughs> you survived. We both survived having toddlers in the house. 
I know. Two each. Uh, he brings up my comment about baking the soil before actually using it on, on your modeling projects. Now I have to wonder now with a, a lot of stuff folks are using, if this is even necessary, but I've done it in the past. I haven't done it recently because the stuff I've got is, was done years ago and I've got plenty of it. But, uh, again, that, that's to kill the organics in it because I've seen it happen. I've, I've seen it in other publications, model railroad publications where folks have used natural materials, natural earth, soil and stuff and, and haven't, you know, sanitized it in this way, I guess is a good way to put it. And, uh, molds develop, start d- developing molds and stuff like that. How, how long and how hot, I, I think you need to get it above the boiling point of water Yeah, at a minimum. And, yep. uh, I'd say 25, 30 minutes probably would probably take care of it. Yeah. I don't know, to be honest, but that's, I think that's what we did. And my stuff's never caused me a problem. And it's, I mean, it's bone dry. And that's, I think, the, the the key to it is you can do, if your wife will forgive you for using her sheet pan, you can get a lot of it, spread it on a sheet pan, stick it in the oven at 250 for 30 minutes. And in theory, unless you're, unless you're one of these guys who produces dioramas like some sort of assembly line, that's probably going to last you a whole long while. It will. And then back to my other point, I think if you paint it all black, after you put it down, put a layer of paint over it, it may not be necessary. But you know what? I'll be honest with you. If I'm using an organic, I think it's worth doing. Even if even if 99 times out of 100, nothing's going to happen. It's that one in 100 shot. That'll be on the, the model that you consider the best base that you've ever done. Probably. That's just that's just the way things work. It's Murphy's <laughs> law in action. Uh, and whatever you do when you're done with the sheet pan, clean it up. Don't just stick it in the sink. Go get your own and use it to do your diorama scatter material on, so you don't trash your workbench. That that's true. Kenneth Loop, and this one's important. Okay, it, it corrects something we we said uh, that we weren't sure about last time that a listener had told us. Uh, Gators Grip Glue is alive and well. Oh. New website, gatorsmodelstudio.com. Okay, and we'll have to put a link on that uh, show notes to that. Gators Grip is is Kenneth's product. So th- this is right from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Um, he says he's had some challenges after they lost their home uh, due to Hurricane Laura, but uh, they're making it work again. So there was a disruption. That's what's going on. Gotcha. Gotcha. So he is not done making Gators Grip. He just, uh, the man lost his house. <laughs> well, you know, we can understand how that might deprioritize your cottage industry modeling hobby. But uh, I've actually met him at a national. I have several things that, several mask and glue things that he's made. So it's good to hear that he is still operating and has a website. So that's good news. Well, we'll get that posted up. And thanks for writing in, Ken, and uh, helping us correct that. So. Uh, never assume as they say. That's right. And sorry about the house. No doubt. I can't imagine. Rod Kuntz from, uh, Denver, Colorado. Or if he knows JB. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. He wants to know if we either have individual or, uh, PMM Instagram accounts, just a food for thought is be easier to see all the awesome photos of our work and beverages, etc. Now we do, but we're a couple of old guys. <laughs> 
Yeah, we need to, we need to hire some fifteen year old tween to run our Instagram account. He's right, though. I, I you know I gotta say we could, we could do a better job, Dave. Yes, we could. Well, but you know what? We actually have to finish some stuff in order to post some pictures and make it meaningful. So maybe we can use that as motivation. We'll try. We'll try. Stephen Lee, our good friend Stephen Lee from Spruce Pie with Fritz, has written in, Dave. Steve has been doing some fantastic stuff on his blog lately. I'm telling you what. Well, he uh, says we pondered the question of which old kits stand the test of time or as good or as better or of some more recent offerings. He has a nomination. Okay. He wants to nominate Italeri's 1980s vintage in 135th scale SDKFC 234-2, which is the the Puma, the five-centimeter turreted. Eight-wheeled armored car. Would, wouldn't you have some experience with this? I would have some experience with this. It makes me wonder if I agree with him or not. Uh, yes, you can uh, You can tune that kit up pretty well. It's a good fitting well, kit, in my opinion. He says, you know, Dragons, you know, they, they've got theirs. It's usual, usual combination of problematic instructions, meh engineering, and unfriendly plastic, which is a, is a personal objection to his of his of dragon kits i have to get him to elaborate on that yeah maybe uh, we'll have to have steven on sometime and talk about that because that's an interesting subject yeah i don't know steve i've built that kit and i think the wheels are terrible other than that it's not bad so i don't know i i, I also have the dragon kit i've, I've never done a side-by-side comparison I, I yeah it's right he's got it's got a lot more parts uh, but do they fit and they tell you to put them in the right place? <laughs> I, I have no idea yet. <laughs> it's a, the the classic dragon instruction. Put it somewhere over there. That's right. And he's recently discovered the joys of bourbon. Oh, good. And, and he thinks of us every time he uh, is hanging out with his new friend, Basil Hayden. Oh, Basil Hayden's a good friend to hang out with. Well, it's a good, a good entry bourbon. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Up next is Zach Peace from uh, sunny Eastern Connecticut. <laughs> is that a real place or is that, is, is that a joke? <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's a great question. Uh, he liked our discussion on repurposing. And, uh, you know, he's got a, a daughter who's six now, so he's just come out of the toddler phase. He's got a school, school-aged kid now, which is a big help. And he did what I did. He saved a bunch of baby food containers mm-hmm. and all the little double walled and partitioned things for corralling small parts and decals and all that stuff. So he's exhausted his supply, though. Guess it's time to have another kid there, Zach. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, well, yeah. I'm all for that. I think that's great. But as far as a cost-effective way to come up with hobby supplies may not be the most cost-effective. May not. May not. You're probably probably right. (laughs) Uh, And on the modeling fluid front, uh, he's recommending Lot 40 Canadian rye. That's kind of coincidence. I'm drinking a rye tonight. Yeah. But not from Canada. It's from Michigan. Well, that's close. Almost Canada. That's almost Canada. Oh, we got one from Whitey from uh, the Model Geeks, Hollywood, All right. Hollywood, Maryland. All right. Uh, he's looking forward to Omaha. 
seeing us all again. So I, you know, I answered his email and said, yeah, we're looking forward to that too. You know, I, we reached out kind of, we, we asked them to to give us their take or thought they might offer their take on this kind of front loading the build with the doing the ordinance and all the, all the popcorn up front. Right. Typically he says he'd waits to the end and, or he may work on them while other parts are drying, but uh, that's the way he does it. He does wait to the end more or less. Okay. Well, I asked him to have some of the other geeks write in to see what they do. I, if this is your jam, you know, 48 scale jets, and maybe that works for you. Yeah. But yep. I can I can see definitely how it would not be for somebody who who is ready to be done with it. And I can tell you from from having built a number of 72nd scale jets that by the time I if I wait to the end and I don't have pre-done ordnance hanging around in a drawer somewhere, I am usually done with the model and I either leave the ordinance off or it becomes an afterthought that many times otherwise detracts from the model. So I I am a big fan of when you've got 30 minutes and you don't have the ability to do something on one of the projects that you're working on, do some ordinance. Then when you get a bunch of it done, it all gets sprayed the same colors. Spray it particularly if you happen to have that color in your in your cup so that you end up with drawers full of ordnance that you can hang on your aircraft. I think you could do the same thing to some extent with military vehicle stowage. That's true. You can. Up next, William Chill. Bill Chill. I like that. Well, I know. He's written in before. Uh, He's an expat, U.S. expat in uh, Boris, Sweden, and he's an IT engineer at Volvo. How about some (laughs) Volvo swag, Bill? (laughs) <laughs> or maybe some parts for uh, uh what is a V70? Uh, I, I can I can handle that over here. <laughs> <laughs> could use a t-shirt though. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do when there're no more of that that platform? I'll have to move on to the next one, I guess. Yeah. Or maybe this uh, will run its course. Well, he just went to the the Swedish Nationals in Malmo. Uh-huh. Right? Yep. And uh, while not as big as the U.S. Nats, uh, he, he had a great time. He says this show rotates between three cities, Stockholm, Gothenburg, and Malmo. Gothenburg is where a lot of Volvos are built, actually. For a country with, he says, a population of 10 million total. Um, that's why it's not as big, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> had a great time. He says he set a budget of uh, 2,000 Swedish crowns, which is about 225 bucks and spent 5,000 Swedish crowns. <laughs> yes. Good job. That is, <laughs> that is the way to do it. Set yourself a budget, go to the nationals, blow right through your budget. Um, you know, one of the things I would love to do is I would love to go to the nationals in other countries. Obviously I want to go to scale model world. Uh, I would love to go to, well, I guess it's the equivalent of a nationals in Australia. I'd love to go to Sweden. Uh, I know Norway has a nationals every year. And I would love, I would love when, when I hit the big lottery where I no longer am, uh, am required to be employed, that is definitely what one thing I would love to do. Well, I'm going to jump down to a point he makes that's kind of interesting. Um, it's, it's kind of an overall impression of the, of the judging and uh, what did well and what did not. 
And he says he's not sure if it's the Nordic taste, but modelers do, models done in the Spanish school with their virtuosic flair and fancy color modulation did not do very well in the judging. The best of show in the armor category was a modern Norwegian tank with zero weathering. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, there are a lot of, well, not a lot. There's only 10 million people in the whole country. Um, <laughs> Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark, Denmark, and Northern Hemisphere. There's a style out of that area that is, uh, it's got a lot of muted, more somber kind of color toning to it. Yeah. And I, I really like it. And it's, I've seen it attributed to possibly being the fact that they are in the Northern hemisphere and they're how to, how to say it without a muted color palette. Yeah. The muted color palette is, is, is kind of an artifact of their interpretation. Well, the way they see the world, the, the, the sunlight differences the, the, the long periods of darkness, right. Uh, can kind of have that effect possibly. And maybe that's the reason for the style difference, but uh, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting point. Well, and and I do think the, the the Spanish school, obviously, when it first burst on the scene, it became very very popular. But then I think that there was a reaction to it as being okay. Now that's just too much, especially as people pressed the Spanish school to its and past its logical extremes. And I think there probably was a reaction to that that says, now, now, now you've gone too far here. That's, <laughs> you know, you, you've gone from deeply contrasted to cartoonish. And so I think there is, you know, there's a natural swing back and forth of a pendulum as far as that goes. And I think that, the the pendulum is swinging back toward more moderate, muted, more, and I don't want to say realistic, but not quite as exaggerated a set of highlight shadows and stuff that is what the Spanish school was famous for. Yeah, I guess. I don't know, but it's, a, it's an interesting point. It is. It is. Up next... Also from that part of the world, from Denmark, is uh, Salim Burr, who actually uh, says his dad was Syrian. They moved to Syria for a, uh, for, for a few years back when uh, Assad Sr. was ruling over that country. And he remembers <laughs> being in a state of emergency a lot of the times. And uh, a lot of Russian BTR-60s and T-62s parked around the corners of the capital. Well, I'm, uh, glad, I'm glad he's not in Syria right now. Yeah. And a lot of tired personnel standing in the sun looking like they wanted to be somewhere else. Amen. Soldiers, <laughs> soldiers everywhere. He's asking a, to talk a bit about primers, which is probably a whole segment on its own. Um, yep. Talk to Dr. Miller about that. He says there seems to be a religion on primers, and I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, he's purchased the expensive ones from Tamiya and the cheap ones from the hardware store, and he can't really see the difference. And the fanatics say the cheap one will disrupt the details on the model, but he can't really tell. Maybe it's his bad eyes, he says. <laughs> I will tell you, I, I am a, a big fan of Mr. Surfacer 1500 Black in the Rattle Can, which is obviously on the expensive end. I like what it does for me, but... 
am I willing to admit somebody might be able to go to a hardware store and get some gloss black paint out of a rattle can that could do 90% of what Mr. Surfacer does? Yeah, I think that's probably possible. A little bit of it just may be the security blanket for me, knowing that if I use the Mr. Surfacer, I don't have to question whether it's going to work. True. And I think I think that uh, my experience is, I, I think, like the Tamiya, I use the Tamiya rattle cam primer a lot, and it's not cheap. No. And I don't get a lot of models out of it. Even at my pace, I don't get much out of it. <laughs> But I think it's got a finer finish and a finer atomization. I just think it comes out of the can more predictable than a, a big hardware store rattle can. Well, and not only that, I think the carrier flashes off better. It may. I don't know. But I think I think JB over at the Posse podcast uses rattle can primer quite a bit. Well, maybe he'll weigh in. We'll get an email from him. All right. Well, we may need to explore that in a little deeper because there's, yes. you know, there's lacquer primers and acrylic primers and all that jazz yep rock rosak from detail and scale they have a new book dave Uh oh hot on the heels of somebody's tomcat release i think somebody just released a big tomcat yeah uh there have been several tomcats released Uh, i meant like in the last couple months uh well last quarter maybe yeah somebody released one in the last quarter and i can't remember there were several within the last year year and a half so that there's a all new set of Tomcats in all of the scales. Well, this is color and markings of the F-14 Tomcat Part 3. Prototypes, test, evaluation, and adversary aircraft. So this is all the unusual schemes you might see on a Tomcat. See, that one tickles my fancy for the adversary stuff. I just, one of, one of the areas I love are those adversary schemes. Well, if you're interested in this book, you can go to www.detailandscale.com. There's a print edition for $23.99 and a digital edition for $14.99. If you're into F-14 Tomcats and looking for some unusual uh, liveries, there you go. I may have to I may have to look into that because, again, I'm a librarian who happens to model. Well, from the email channels, I'm to, to my last one, Dave. This is uh, Richard Forzon from, uh, well, he doesn't say where he's from, but it's a quick one. Uh, he just uh, recently joined IPMS, and he wants to thank Yay. us for encouraging him to do so. So, thank you. I'm glad you did. I think your your dedicated statue now is going to be <laughs> yeah. carved out of a log with a chainsaw instead of an ice sculpture, Dave. Uh, well, that's okay. I'll take either. Um, I've got one last one. Um, came in via our Facebook page, uh, via Facebook Messenger. Ken Freund, who I would not have known how to pronounce his last name other than he said, Freund rhymes with joint. So I took my cue from him. Um, He listened to our episode 56 and uh, we broke his wallet because it caused (laughs) him to pull the trigger on a silhouette cutter. Uh, he got a silhouette cameo four, and now he has had previous ex- experience because he was in the graphics industry, so he had experience with the commercial Roland units. But he said those were clearly too big to buy and use for 
for hobby purposes. So uh, uh, he's picked up the cameo and I've encouraged him to tell me of his experience because I'm going to uh, I'm going to learn from him. And he also says that the 10X, uh, 7X is been that somebody figured out the formula for 10X, 7X, and it is carried by a company called JM Hobby Supply out of Pulaski, Wisconsin. It's, it's marketed under the name Styrene Tackett 2. That's Styrene, T-A-C-K hyphen IT Roman numeral 2. So considering I like the 10X, now I've got the FlexiFile PlastiWeld, which I found to be very similar. But if you use 10X and like 10X, the uh, same formula in a different bottle is available from uh, JM Hobby Supply out of Pulaski, Wisconsin. And uh, I appreciate Mr. Freund for supplying that info. Well, that's the listener mail for this episode, Dave. If folks would like to write into the show, please send your emails to plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com. This is, has become one of my favorite segments of the show, and it must be for a lot of other people because we just keep getting more and more. And love every one of them. Thanks, guys, for writing in. Uh, keep it coming. Questions, suggestions, let us know. Absolutely. And you can also uh, send us a uh, message in Facebook Messenger if you're if you use the Facebook platform. Uh, So feel free to reach out that way. This is the point in the podcast where I stop and I beg you that when you're done listening to this episode that you'll go and rate us five stars on your podcatcher of choice, whatever podcast app you listen to us, uh, please rate us there. Also subscribe if you don't subscribe. And finally, please tell a friend. And a lot of you have been doing this because we continue to gain new listeners. And we know that some of them have come from people telling their friends, their modeling friends about the uh, podcast. And to be honest with you, that is the best way for us to get new listeners. So if you would do that, we would appreciate it. Also, please check out all the other podcasts out there in the model sphere. Uh, we've cr- we've created a consortium website to aggregate all those to one spot, so you can have some quick, easy links. Uh, go to modelpodcast.com. That's plural, modelpodcast.com, and there's links to quite a few of the other podcasts who are participating in this little uh, consortium with us. Also, please check out our blog and YouTube friends out there in the model sphere. We got Mr. Stephen Lee, who we mentioned earlier in the listener mail segment with his sprue pie with frets blog, Chris Wallace, model airplane maker. He's got a blog and a YouTube channel and he's been pretty prolific on the blog side, especially in the last uh, couple of weeks. Yep. Jeff Groves, an inch high guy, all things 72nd scale. If you like 72nd scale, you need to check out his blog and see what he's up to. Cause he's always got a lot going on. And finally, Jim Bates, a Scale Canadian TV. Uh, check out his YouTube channel. And I'm jealous. He got to go to a great show this weekend with uh, some of the Plastic Posse podcast guys. And uh, yep. uh, we haven't got to a show yet this year. So we're behind it. We'll get there, though. Yep, absolutely. Finally, I'd like to ask if you're not a member of your national IPMS organization, that's IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, IPMS Australia, IPMS Norway, IPMS UK. Whatever your national organization is, uh, consider joining. Uh, even if you're a member of your local club, 
consider joining your national organization. They do great work. A lot of it's behind the scenes. All of it is done by volunteers. Nobody's getting paid for doing this. They're giving up their modeling time to uh, to try and make the hobby better for the average modeler out there. So a lot of you have emailed in and let us know that you've joined or rejoined. And I want you to know, I sincerely thank you from the bottom of my heart to all of you who've done that. And if you've, if you haven't done it, I'd appreciate if you would consider joining your national IPMS organization. All right, Dave, we've covered a lot so far, but let's take a short break here and have a word from our sponsor. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. We're back, Dave, and it is Wagon's Hoe for Omaha. So how close are we, Mike? At the time of this recording, Dave, we are 148 days away from the IPMS <sighs> National Convention in Omaha, Nebraska. That's going to fly by, man. 148 days is going to go by like nothing. Especially when the weather warms up. Yes, absolutely. I'm getting excited. We're 148 days away. The vendor table forms are up now on the, on the national website. The trophy sponsorship uh, applications or the... Uh, the portal to pay for trophy sponsorships and put in your suggestions for your top three to sponsor are available now. Uh, there's still the night at the museum, I think is still being offered. So if you haven't got in on that, you probably want to do that soon. Yeah. I imagine those, the, the, I know they limited the number of, of attendees. Uh, I've got to believe that's going to sell out awfully soon. Well, I've reserved us a vendor table, but it wasn't shown on the list of vendors, and I've inquired about that. So hopefully we'll get that sorted out. <laughs> yeah, we uh, def definitely need to. In the next 24 hours, because uh, we certainly want to want to have our spot in the vendor room. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, trophy sponsorships, I said it last episode, I'll say it again. If you've got a hobby business, a club, some extra cash. You feel like sponsoring a trophy package, please do. It's, it's just a, it's a, that's kind of a, that's, that is a major expense for the show. I would Yes, think. it is. It is one of the large expenses for the show. So any, any help you can get along that is much, much appreciated. So, uh, we sponsored one last year. We're probably going to get on that again. Yep. And, uh, I got to get in. So we get a good, we get a good one. Got to get yep. a good one. That's kind of suitable for our podcast. There you go. Well, and I tell you, Dave, just the anticipation is really starting to build because oh. we're getting we're getting a lot of can't wait to see you guys, yeah, kind of emails and, and messages on on the Facebook page and stuff, and uh, it's, it's going to be a good time. Las Vegas was our first national after starting the podcast, and it really, really turned out well, both the experience in the, in the vendor room, recording interviews, etc., but also the social aspects to it. Um, we had a whole lot of fun with a whole lot of people, uh, everything from the breakfast with all of the podcasters to, to the podcast, uh, seminar that we impromptu seminar that we did to, uh, late nights, uh, sitting around, uh, sipping various, uh, caramel colored fluids and, uh, 
you know, I've got to think that Omaha is going to be next level. Well, I hope so. I mean, the Aussies are coming, so. Yeah, that's right. You know, we got to we got to start training now if we want to drink the Aussies under the table. Well, I don't know if we want to do that, but uh, <laughs> I look forward to meeting those guys face to face and uh, hanging out. And uh, absolutely, and I think they're in with the night at the museum too, so that'll be they fun are be, being there with those guys. So they are they are there. I can so, guarantee that. So Davey and enjoying, looking forward to it, guys. It's going to yeah, be a absolutely. good time. Yep, we'll show you some good old Southern hospitality, even though we're not in the South. Well, we are in the South. Omaha isn't in the South. <laughs> that's that's what I meant, Dave. All right. <laughs> well, Dave, it's time for the Benchtop Halftime Report brought to us by Tackett Z. Tackett Z, the must-have tools for the model maker. Uh, get in on some Tackett Z tools. You can do so at www.tackettz.com. Please check them out. Yeah, I know, I know Jim just placed an order. G- good job, Jim. I'm sure Ed appreciates it. I need to order some more stuff. Yeah. I need to. I'm, I do too. I because I found that I've found that I need some more stuff just to be able, especially as you get multiple projects going. Well, Dave, speaking of multiple projects, yes, that's right. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to na- nickname my model bench multiple projects. <laughs> what you got going on this episode? The, the okay. I said that the mosquito would be done uh, last episode. It is so close to done. It is right there, really. uh, I mean, now I'm just dinking around with the the gears done, the the canopies on. Most of the pencil weathering's been done, although there's a little more of that I want to play with. It's now uh, I'm... This is, I am not going to consider this model a huge success. In fact, I have a long blog post that I'm formulating uh, for when it is finally done. And I can take, well, I won't call them beauty shots, but a couple of photographs. But that's basically all I've been working on. The uh, I haven't had a huge amount of modeling time in the last two weeks, but that's about it. And I've got it to the point where uh, I'm close to sticking it in the case. So is there going to be a link on your blog to get a uh, just say no to group builds t-shirt? You, you know what? I've, I've got to, I, I really, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm generally not a tattoo guy, but I'm, I swear that I think that I need to have something tattooed on the back of one of my hands that says, say no to group builds. Because, <laughs> yeah, I, that is part of the problem with the experience. Now, I won't blame all of it, but most of the most of the problems with this build were my own idiocy and poor choices. But it certainly didn't help the fact that it was not something that I chose myself to do. That's right, and we shouldn't dog it too hard. A lot of people enjoy that. And yes, maybe right. I could too if, if the if the equation if the recipe was right, yeah. I might enjoy it too. But usually it's the kiss of death for my productivity. Yep, absolutely. But that's me, and it's apparently you as well. Yep. So other than that, the only thing I've done is a little bit of work on the B fifty two, just simply because I, there were times where, again, I didn't have enough time to do a lot, so I was. 
doing, and I felt a little more construction oriented. So I was doing some sanding and stuff on the B-52, but sadly the model bench hasn't shown a huge amount of production for the last two weeks. Part of that is also has to do with um, COVID work, et cetera. So hopefully all of that is in the rear view mirror and I'll have something to actually show for it before we broadcast the next episode. So uh, Mike, what does your bench look like? Or maybe I should ask, what does your computer screen look like? Well, we got a little bit of both. So let's just start knocking down the list here. Uh, I started priming the Moose Rook Cup entry. All right. Uh, that's interesting because I got to take the whole thing apart. Well, not the whole thing. I got to take it, take all the limbs off and the head off and separate it back into some subs to prime it because there's so many blind angles on it and movable parts that trying to prime it all together seems like a bad idea to me. Gotcha. Uh, so painting will be moving forward on that one shortly. Hopefully this weekend I'll get, start getting some paint on it. Yeah. The that, deadline's coming up. Yeah. That would be awesome. I kind of, let's just rattle can it a solid color and call it done, which I really, <laughs> really don't want to do, but you know, yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> done is the important part. Now, the Zis 2 base has kind of gone stagnant again, uh, kind of catching my breath on that one. I had to get a little courage up to do a few things on that, but now it's time to paint it black. I haven't done that yet. I was going to uh, ask you if you had actually painted it black yet. No, and that's not, I think that's going to be, that's going to be not so bad, I think, because of uh, my biggest fear up until this point was getting so much other ground material on the, the revetment walls that's going to have to repaint them. And I, I successfully navigated that and uh, didn't get anything on them, really. I got some touch-up to do for other reasons, where I've rubbed the paint off the corners and stuff, handling it. But uh, I think paint black's going to go pretty good. Well, I'll tell you what, from every, every time I see Night Shift do that, it causes me to audibly intake air. I, I go, <gasps> <laughs> I mean, and it always works out beautiful. And I'm sure yours will come out beautiful. But... Uh, I can see why you'd stand there with that airbrush and be going, eh, do I really want to do this? And I think you do, but. Well, I put that really garish uh, Chinese static grass on it that came yeah, with the so static now you grass have to, applicator. So now I have to, because it. You, you forced yourself to do it. It looks like a miniature golf course right now. <laughs> it does. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. You need, a ger- you need a German or a Russian figure with a putter. <laughs> An old miniature windmill. There you go. <laughs> it's been a lot of Fusion 360, Dave. That's what I've heard. Been a big distraction. Like uh, last weekend when I wasn't at swim meets. Yeah. And should have been modeling. It was, uh, oh yeah, I think Sunday. It was, I probably was on Fusion for six, seven hours. Not continuous, but almost. Yeah. Uh, it's just distracted from other modeling, but it's, uh, it's, it's time well invested for, for what I got going on, I think. But uh, uh, I've, I've shown the model of the Zis 6, the, you know, the truck leaf spring. Right. On, on uh, the Facebook page several times. That CAD model's done, and i am done plenty of test prints at work. I'm extremely pleased with that effort and the way that turned out. That is, that's really going to get the uh, Katusha project off to a, a quick start once I'm ready to start gluing stuff together on that one. So... 
Well, the thing is, now that you've modeled it, we got to figure out a way to make it more visible. It's almost a shame to hide it under the hide it under the vehicle behind the wheels. Well, the best part of it will be visible, which is the center block and the and the and the springs. Yeah, you'll be able, you'll be able to see most of that. The, the hubs, not so much, but uh, that's okay because I've not been one to try to shy away from the model, the bottom of a model. So if you look up under it from one side, you'll be able to see the backs of the leaf springs on the other side of the vehicle. It's got that going for it for whatever yeah. that's worth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in addition to that though, that's kind of my primer project for fusion 360 and 3d print. Yeah. So I think I've, I've got a success there. Fusion 360. I've kind of figured out some of the quirks and had some help figuring out the quirks along the way. And you know, it's a good package. You know, the price is right. It's free for hobbyists. I mean, there's really no arguing with that. Yeah. Uh, and there's some people out there doing some really amazing stuff that I'll probably never do with it. So it's it's going to be 100% capable of what I'm going to probably do with it, you know, in, in my entire use of it. I mm-hmm. think uh, I figured out how to, how to do everything in Fusion now, just about everything I could do in like Katia or in another enterprise CAD package that I'd used before. Outside of, well, fr- at at a at a job, yeah. So the next the next step is this Reba Botan, this Hungarian truck I want to do, and uh, I've done some test models, some parts. I've got you know I got a lot of information I've I've cataloged on this vehicle, and I've created my master layout to start actually doing real solid modeling uh, for real and parts I intend to either print or use for masters for vacuuming or or whatever. I'll probably take a pause on that for a while and, and get this, get a couple of these other things done. But, uh, I, I'm kind of excited about that project going forward because I've bitten off a couple of pretty big chunks just to kind of play around with fusion 360 and see if I could actually do the modeling. And then it turns out, I think I can. So, uh, the leaf springs was a big confidence boost to go to the next level. And, uh, the big thing on the Rave of Botan is if I can if I can model the wheels and CAD the tires and the tire tread and the shape of the you know, the profile of the tire, yeah, uh, I, I think I can do the whole thing. Now, uh, for the Zis, is there any other part that you're thinking about doing a CAD three rep- uh, D replacement for? No, it's just that the rear leaf, leaf springs to convert it from a, a Zis five to a Zis six. Because those parts were so terrible. In the oh kit. God, they were, and they were visible that I, enough that I wanted to replace them. And, and doing it this way, I can I get the alignment right the first time, and I don't have to scratch build a leaf spring and find out it one wheel's higher off the ground or something after I get it together. <laughs> it's kind of my motivation for doing it this way. So that's gotcha. what's, what's that's what's been going on on my, on my bench. Things have been moving kind of in the uh, in the ether in the computer space, I guess in, in the CAD world, but, uh, you know, it's all tied to a project that, that I intend on going forward with. So that's my bench. Well, good. Well, good. So, uh, Mike, uh, we've been building and we've been making progress on that side. Uh, uh, have you happened to have purchased anything? Did anything break your wallet? I've been good, but not perfect. Okay. Uh, I mentioned it last time. I bought some consumables, a primer uh, that I'm using on the, the Musaru Cup project and some Mr. Hobby decal solutions. That was the yep. artifact of uh, or fallout from the 
Dr. Strangebrush episode. Yeah. Not real exciting there. Um, you know, we talked about vintage kits in the listener mail segment. Now I have bought a first issue of, uh, Airfix's RAF rescue launch in 72nd scale, which is a nice kit. Yeah. And it's, and it's a first issue. So it ought to be the tool quality Chris. and it should be as, as good as it could be. Yeah. So looking forward to that. I think that'll be here tomorrow. Uh, in addition to that, I've bought some uh, BM-13 Katusha rockets from a Russian company called Studio Perfect Models. Now, I ordered those through Armor 35, which is a an armor-centric Russian website. Now, are these resin cast? Or they the, the, they're resin cast with all the stenciling as decals. Oh, okay. So they're really sharp. Well, good. Was there a lot of stenciling on a? On those rockets, not a lot, but it's it's bigger on the rocket because the big the rocket's bigger than like a, a anti tank round. Okay, like the casing on my my Zis two rounds has some stenciling on it. Gotcha. And this has a little bit more information on it, and I'm looking forward to getting these. And now they didn't have them at the time of this order. I was a little disappointed, but uh, Studio Perfect has also done uh, some Zis one wheels. Now Zis one is not what they go on. It is the actual wheel. That's the wheel designation. Zis gets assigned to a lot of stuff because the Z in Zis is Zavad, which is factory. Right. Uh, the I is for the, the Russian word or phrase in the name of, mm-hmm. and the S is for Stalin. So Zis means factory in the name of Stalin. Gotcha. It's what Zis stands for ultimately. And yeah. I'm not I'm not even sure that was a factory. It was probably a lot of factories had that title. I, will, <laughs> if, I, I, if, I would imagine. If you, if you wanted not to be drug out to the gulags or shot. Po- possibly. But they've come out with a set of wire-spoked wheels for like the 45-millimeter anti-tank gun and the 120, yeah. the, the caisson for the 120-millimeter uh, mortar. Yeah. Uh, I want those, too, because they are absolutely gorgeous. I'm, well, they're I'm, not. Hopefully, they're not being routed through the Ukraine. Well, I was about to say, I'm worried that you know the geopolitical landscape may throw some shade on this idea, but uh, uh, we'll see what happens, man. Fingers crossed. Fingers, fingers crossed. crossed. What about you? What broke your wallet, Dave? Well, I have not been as good. Um, after having multiple weeks where I went to the hobby shop and didn't buy anything and really didn't buy stuff online and uh, was doing pretty good. An orgy of wallet breaking took place. Well, first of all, one of the consumables that I failed to mention and meant to mention on the last episode, uh, I went out, replenished my supply of Q-tips, both regular Q-tips and the pointy ones. And I had run through my supply of both, went ahead and got uh, replacements for them. So I count that toward modeling, even though those are not necessarily modeling items. I then purchased the Flyhawk uh, SBD3 Dauntless, which I ordered off of eBay a number of weeks ago. It arrived. Hang on. What's your first impressions of that kit? It is gorgeous. It the fly, is the, the Dauntless. Yes, it is absolutely. It's it it definitely is a great replacement for the old Hasegawa kit. 
it is an upgrade and it is it's it's worth the money. So definitely if you have any interest, yeah, definitely do it. Well, the uh, last the last 70 second scale Dauntless I built, I think was the tester's boxing of the old Hawk kit. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and we don't even want to talk about that. No. Uh then I also purchased the Arma F4 F4 and the Arma P51BC, uh, courtesy through uh, Mr. Bates. And uh, they are both fantastic. Arma continues to amaze. I don't see how this company hit the ground running without a learning curve that most companies seem to experience. Well, maybe they maybe they had their learning curve with a different model manufacturer. Maybe uh, I, I would love to know the story. If the guys from Arma want to come on and be interviewed, this is your open invitation. If you listen, because I would love to talk to you about what you're doing, because what you're doing is fantastic. Finally, the IBG Focke-Wulf 190. They have started releasing these. They are doing all of the D model. 190s in all the different versions with all the different sub variants and variations. Uh, the first two kits have already been released. That's the early production D9 and then the D15 torpedo bomber. The they just announced a double kit of 190 D9s, another boxing, but it's a double kit. Uh, which isn't out yet, but should be out soon. Again, the engineer, I can't wait to get my hands on the actual kit. I ordered it off of eBay. It's coming from Poland. If that kit's any good at all, that ought to be a big hit. That I think that whole series, if it lives up to what I've seen in sprue shots and in CAD and in renders and in early uh, early test builds, I cannot imagine that this is not going to be one of the the hottest kits of the year. I'm sure I'll get one eventually. I just IBGs, their armor kits are good. I mean, yes, I like them. Yeah. So, and their aircraft kits are good too. Well, and so this there's, there's high hopes. And this seems next level good. It seems like these guys have stepped it up a notch, and I will be interested to put my hands on the plastic and see how it goes together. Is that all you got? That's it, man. God, if I had any more, I'd be in bankruptcy court. <laughs> you could represent yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never a good idea. Probably not. Well, Dave, it's special segment time, and tonight's special segment uh, is actually uh, one you help propagate and nurture. It's one that uh, uh, I got to admit, I've been thrilled to see come to fruition. I never thought it would happen. I I'm really excited to to get to get to get to talk to our guest. Well, our guest is Mr. Steve Hustad from Minnesota, and he's probably most known for his uh, historic photograph-based uh, 72nd scale aircraft dioramas. So let's just get into that right now, Dave. Dave, for our special segment this episode, uh, we've got someone here tonight that you're a big fan of, uh, Mr. Steve Hustad from uh, Minnesota. And I bet it's sure cold up there tonight. Yeah. So right now it's actually the warm day sandwiched between a few cold ones. So it's about 30 degrees right now, but 
Marl's high is going to be like 12. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, it's warm down here as well. We had about a, almost 60 degrees today. Yeah, we're kind of in the opposite situation. We get a cold day every once in a while, sandwiched between the warm ones. So okay, uh, we're, we're we've come off our cold one, which was yesterday, and now today and tomorrow are both uh, sixty degree plus. Well, that sounds like more fun. But. Yes. <laughs> well, Steve, we're both admirers of your work, and I know Dave in particular is. He set this one up, so I'm going to let Dave drive. So I'm going to let him handle this. So, Dave. Take it away, sir. You got it. Um, this is actually the well, the pretty much the first time that uh, I've ever spoken with our guest. Uh, I actually did exchange one or two brief sentences with him at a national convention that he doesn't remember, uh, and there's no reason he should. But uh, before we get into that story, Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself and your modeling. Okay. Well, let's see. I live in uh, Eden Prairie, Minnesota, which is a uh, southwest suburb of Minneapolis. I'm 68 and retired now, so my main job is building models now. Um, I'm an architect. Uh, got into it, I think, when I was five years old, actually. Um, built my first model in old Lindbergh uh, monoplane, which my sister helped me make. And uh, I remember cutting out the decals, and we didn't uh, put them in water. We just cut them out and then glued them with the paper backing <laughs> onto the model. So that was my first recollection. But I was hooked from that that uh, that single kit early on. So uh, retired a few years ago. Main areas of modeling interest uh, lately have been uh, pretty much all 70-second scale uh, aircraft dioramas for the last few years interspersed with some 70-second scale uh, Japanese World War II and 72nd scale uh, armor modeling. I have numerous questions. Okay. And you, you're going to have to help me with dates here because I may get these out of order. I first saw one of your models. I think it was the 2005 IPMS USA Nationals in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was a JU-188, 72nd scale JU-188 crashed in water diorama. Is that correct? Yeah, that's one of my, one of my early ones, uh, the old Italeri kit, um, yeah. uh, titled Stranded in California. I think it was off off the coast of Greece somewhere where this, uh, this crew was shot down by a, a British, uh, I think Spitfire or bow fighter, I can't remember now, but um, <clears throat> they were stranded on this island for like a couple of weeks before they were rescued by a uh, DO-24 or an HE-115. But while they were there, they took a series of photos. And uh, that's what I used to model the diorama from, is the photos they took while they were waiting to be rescued. So. And that's, that's the amazing thing. Mike and I have commented previously, because Mike is uh, an armor modeler with a uh, particular interest in Soviet World War II armor. And one of the things he does is he watches German eBay for all of these old World War II photographs. And he's commented on the fact that German soldiers were equipped with, many of them took their personal cameras and took lots of pictures. Mm -hmm. And this particular diorama that I'm describing, A, it blew my mind because it, it's just unbelievable that you took a series of pictures that the, these guys took standing on the top of their airplane, which is half submerged in water, 
and you actually managed to recreate the diorama using those photos where you have you even have the photographer in the proper place <laughs> to get the perspective of the photograph that you featured behind the diorama. Yeah, that was a fun one. And all my dioramas are done from veterans photographs. Um, not always U.S. veterans, but usually. But yeah, that's kind of a kind of a fun way to do it. And there were actually several photos taken from several different angles of that scene. And I kind of model it usually based on one, but the other photos kind of help you fill out the scene and right. get everything else right. So, Well, and, and what really caught my eye about that model is that I, I have a contention that 72nd scale aircraft dioramas may be the hardest thing to pull off and make look right, make look good. Just simply the, the small scale makes makes it difficult to make it not look toy-like. And and this diorama that we're talking about, cert- and we'll put pictures of it up, certainly don't look toy-like. It, it is just really very realistic, and obviously the photos help that, but that took guts to do. What what made you think you could pull that off? Well, <laughs> I had the kit and I had the materials and I just had the time. So I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And if it doesn't work, nobody has to see it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I took a took a run at it and and it worked. And I think you're right. The seventy second scale. Um, a lot of people kind of dim, uh, diminish seventy second scale, but. That's that's my primary scale, and it's it's the scale I like to work in because it's sometimes it's difficult to get things in scale and to look good. And I think um, when you do, I think it's that much more impressive. And that's why I like to work in seventy-second scale because it's kind of a more of a challenge. The camouflaging is more of a challenge. The uh, the scale finesse is more of a challenge. And uh, replicating the figures, getting the faces and everything just to scale, getting things to scale is just more of a challenge. So, and I like a challenge with these uh, these dioramas. So. Well, that was certainly a challenge. Now, did you have your JU eighty eight is beautiful, JU one eighty eight is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Did you have any hesitation about submerging it, half submerging it in? whatever was it a resin that you used what did you use to simulate the water because it comes out really really nicely oh thanks Uh, that's um actually almost about a third of my modeling time is experimenting so i bought this um material called envirotex light i think i picked it up at michael's and it's a two-part uh resin material and it's uh, it's actually made for giving a high gloss thick finish to like tabletops like bar tops Gotcha. And it's supposed to be put on like eighth inch layers. So I got this stuff, mixed it up and uh, experimented with it to make sure it wouldn't attack plastic or paint, which it turned out it doesn't. So then just kind of layer it up in like uh, eighth inch, three sixteenths inch uh, layers and kind of build it up. And then the top layer, the stuff dries just mirror flat though, which is a problem. So to get the, the kind of the waves and the ripples and things, I take this Liquitex uh, uh, heavy gel medium, which is an acrylic product. Yeah. And I kind of put that on the top and you can kind of sculpt that into the waves and the ripples. And, and then that drives perfect, dries perfectly clear too. And on top of that, 
you can go back with more of the Liquitex heavy gel medium with a little bit of acrylic flat white added to it, just a little bit to tint it where it kind of splashes up against the airframe and, and causes, you know, kind of a, a foamy look. Yeah. And you can well, kind of apply that too. And so that's, that's the way you get the, uh, get that. And it's really controllable. So it's really not as hard as it looks. It just kind of takes time. And, and then when that's all settled and when that's all dried, then I just kind of, kind of brush on a really heavy coat of high gloss future and then it's that's done well this is the national where i actually saw you and spoke to you the one and only time before tonight because at ipms nationals one thing they do that i really like is with the entry form it's folded under where if you're interested you can lift up the entry form and you can see the name of the builder Oh, right. And because a lot of times you see a builder and you see they've done something and you want to go ask them, how did you pull this off? What technique did you use? Did you find this kit particularly difficult? Is there anything I should look out for? But I looked and that's where I saw your name. And then when everybody was picking up their models, I was I didn't have a model entered there because I had just come back from China after adopting oh. my first daughter. Oh, uh, the, wow. fact, the fact that my wife let me go to the IPMS Nationals less than 30 days after returning <laughs> from China with uh, the, the woman's a saint. Probably, this was probably an infant you brought home too, right? She's probably in shock. 14 yeah. <laughs> months old. Yeah, maybe oh, okay. so. Hey, it worked. It happened. I'm, I'm not going to question my good fortune. Yep. But I, after the award ceremony, I stood back by that model because I wanted to see the person who built it. And you came to pick up your model, and I just simply said, nice model, and you said, thank you very much. And that was the entire in- interaction. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, then, but then the next year was Kansas City. And I'm in Kansas City, 2006. I think your entry that year was a JU-52 that was crashed. Oh, the, on the hillside, kind of winter camouflage. Yes. And it was kind of springtime, so there was like some melting snow. and. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, that was fun to do. I think that was Kansas City. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, and to be honest with you, as soon as I saw it, I knew who, knew who had to build it because a lot of modelers have a style. And once you've seen one or two of their models, you're like, oh, okay, I, I, I recognize that. So there are not that many people who pull off 70-second scale aircraft di- dioramas that well anyway. And uh, so I was like, oh, well, he's here. I'm, that's, that's fantastic. I got to enjoy that model. And then I'm walking around the rest of the display area, and we're in the dioramas and vignettes. Mm. And one area of interest for me outside of 72nd scale aircraft is World War I stuff. I Uh, really, not World War I airplanes, because I am not going to build a biplane in 72nd scale, at least a World (laughs) War I biplane. But so I'm walking around the vignettes, and there is this really fantastic small German, World War I German machine gun nest. And really just beautifully composed really the, the the figures were done well the the groundwork was done well and so naturally i lifted up the thing and looked to see who who had done it and it was you 
Oh, I was going to say mine was sitting next to it, I think. <laughs> no, no, no. It was like, damn, this is not fair that he can do this too. Oh, yeah. That, that was another area of my interest. Um, 35th scale uh, World War I uh, figure dioramas. And, oh my gosh, again, we'll put a picture up of it because I took a bunch of pictures that it was absolutely gorgeous. Oh, I mean, thanks. you really did. One of the things that I think is tough to do with a vignette or a small diorama is to convey action to make it look like it's not a posed painting or photograph, but it is a snapshot of something that's happening continuously. Mm-hmm. And you, you're you just looking at the single frame from that action. Yeah. Well, and, my, yeah, my kind of hero is uh, Bill Horan, who uh, oh, does yeah. figure dioramas. He's the absolute best. And, that's that's where I get my inspiration from from for uh, figure dioramas. Yeah. Well, let's go back just a minute, Dave. If you let me get a yeah, question. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve, the, the the diorama with the the airplane in the water was is, is not your only one in the water. Mm-hmm. You seem to have a a penchant for for doing those. I think maybe we'll get into it maybe a little later. But you did a series of uh, Battle of Britain dioramas, I believe. Oh yeah, last year. Okay. Um, are you using the same material for your water time and again, but you said you were, you, you spent a lot of time, a third of your time experimenting. Um, right. Wh- are you using different things? What else? Cause I've never done a water one and I've got a, I've got a kind of a, a soft spot for 72nd scale float planes. And I got a feeling that I'm going to have to have a, a water. It's yeah. coming. A water experience is coming. Well, Mike, <laughs> did you get, did you get that Paul finished yet? No, it's, it's on the back burner <laughs> until I get something else done, but. Uh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, um, no, it's the same as far as water. Um, I've been using the same, uh, Invirotex light for all my water after I finally figured out that it doesn't, uh, wreck the model or wreck the the paint so i figured well this 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 works pretty well and then so i've kind of settled on that for my my technique um for water although i do want to experiment with something that has more undulating water where it's like really high waves and and deep gullies and i'm gonna have to figure out something different for that because i've got a an idea for a uh, Harado Air 196 diorama where it's kind of about to be capsized at sea and they're trying to get into a boat and it's just roiling around them. But so I might have to figure out something different for that. But Steve, you're speaking his language right now. The Arado 196 is uh, uh, one of Mike's sweet spots. Uh, <laughs> it is a cool plane. Uh, I think it's probably the... When I think of a float plane, that's the one that comes to mind every single time. Yeah, I just it, wish we had a better one in seventy second. But which one are you planning on? The old Heller? Or yeah, I'm going to use. The- I I think uh, was it Sword came out with one, yes. but I, I can't find it anywhere. And and the old Heller one with the Edward photo etch and the Falcon vac canopy, and there's some quick boost for it too. I think it'll turn out pretty well. So I'm going to use that one. So Mike mentioned that that you just did a series of Battle of Britain dioramas, but let's Mm -hmm. expand on what those were, because again, they're a, they are really great 72nd scale aircraft dioramas. They're all done from either a photograph or a series of photographs, correct? That's right. And, and they were basically German aircraft. Were they all 109s? Yep, they're <clears throat> they're all one or nine E's, and they're okay. all they're all in some some form of crashed, and 
but I was looking through some books and of course you get, I get my inspiration from the photos in the books and I wanted to do a one and I need battle of Britain diorama with, uh, then I came across one. I put a posted on that page and thought, yeah, I want to do that one. And a few pages later, well, there's another one. I'd like to do that one too. And a few pages more, I'd like to do that one too. And pretty soon <laughs> I just figured out, well, I'm going to do all four. So I, so I got, uh, I, I worked on two at a time. I always build models two at a time, dioramas two at a time. Really? And, yeah. And uh, so I did the the one with the, the sheep herder and the sheep on it first, along with the uh, the one where the one or nine is dismantled on the truck bed and it's being hauled off to the scrap heap. So I built those two at the same time. And First of all, which 109 kit did you use? Um, I used, For those, I used two different ones. That's bef- before the special hobby kit came out. Right. Which is, by and large, the, the best that I've ever seen for a 109E. But um, I used for the uh, the one with the sheep and the diorama, I used the the Tamiya 109E, but I used the ICM fuselage. Gotcha. Because the fuselage has the correct length and the Tamiya is a little short. Although when you put it together, you really can't tell. So I probably didn't really need to. And the other one is the uh, the newer Airfix uh 109E, the one that's dismantled on the truck bed and um, had to cut that apart and get the wings, you know, kind of put by it. And then the two dioramas I did after that, one was, I called it, uh, it's a horsepower and manpower or horsepower and manpower. And it's, there's a team of horses that's pulling this 109, but there's a lot of RAF personnel pushing it from behind, but they're just posing for a photo. That one was another airfix kit. And the uh, the other one, the fourth one, uh, the one that's crashed in the water, it's a plane that made it back to the French coast, but not quite to the airfield and ditched in the water. And that's the, uh, uh, it's got a bare chested guy looking in the cockpit. And that's the, that, that one's also the airfix kit. So I use those two for those. And actually, I've had a couple ideas for a couple more Battle of Britain 109E dioramas, but <laughs> <laughs> not quite yet. But Now, speaking of which, you talk about those dioramas the kit obviously is available but a lot of the other stuff in the photographs aren't necessarily available right like for the one with the truck where did you get the truck um the truck is well i should the truck is about 80 percent scratch built okay and the chassis is from um the chassis and the wheels uh came from some uh, Eastern European uh, uh, gas fire truck or something. Gotcha. So I bought I bought that and it's for the 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 chassis and the wheels and then that part of the cab I used too. And I but it's from photos again. I would carve it up and chop it apart and and used a lot of evergreen and plaster strut uh, sheet strip and rod and and uh, just kind of built that up to match the photos. So first of all, where do you find seventy second scale sheep? Uh, those are scratch built. <laughs> so, scratch built sheep. <laughs> yeah, I I did a um, uh, built. I made three. I made a wire armature, and then used some epoxy sculpt, and then made these sheep. Three. I made three sheep. One bigger and two smaller, and then with different heads and different angles. And and uh, had a friend of mine, uh, Bob Ferrara here, who used to cast for role models when they did loon models resin. So I had him cast me up ten copies of each. And then I got those and then I'd modify them a little more. And so <laughs> that's, that's where those came from. So, well, what I like about that diorama is, is the, 
I don't know why, but I've seen it on I don't know, a video, a movie or, or something on television where you see these herds of sheep moving and they're all, all so tightly packed together. Yeah, it was a common scene in England. And I, I saw that photo and I didn't know how I was going to do the sheep. And I looked around and Prizer didn't have them. And I think they do now, actually. But nobody made sheep in 70 second scale. And I thought, well, it can't be that tough. So. And I've done a lot of scratch building with, with putties. So I thought, well, I'll work them up and Bob cast me up some copies. And so it worked out fine. Well, I think a lot of people would just would have just stuck sheep everywhere. But but the way you, of course, you, you say you had a photograph, but uh, um, right. the, the realism of the way the sheep are, are all packed together and moving as, as this tightly packed herd, um, it just really, it's, the, the realism there was was just incredible. I really liked that one a lot. Oh, thanks. I got a lot of ribbing from my friends about that one too. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever do an aircraft diorama without an actual photograph? Um, so far I haven't. I've done 26 aircraft dioramas so far, but they've all been done by photos. But the one I just described that I want to do with the AR-196, of course they're out at sea and they're about to be ditched. <laughs> that one will, that's kind of just out of my imagination. So that's not a photo, but no, that okay. has yet to be done. Other than the Arado, is there another set of photographs that you've basically been looking at and thinking, okay, when I'm done with the 109s, I'm looking at doing this? Yeah, I've got, um, well, I think as modelers, we all kind of have big libraries and we're always looking through books and, and I've got a, a, a a packet of post-it notes that I keep and, and a pen. And when I see something that might make a good diorama, I'll, I'll write on the post-it note and slap it on. So it's sticking up above the page so I can come back to it later. And, and uh, looking at my library now, it's, it's like you look at the books and they've got like hundreds of these post-it notes sticking up <laughs> and it's, you know, I have to live a hundred more years before I get half of those. So my wife accuses me of being a librarian that that collects models rather than oh. a modeler that collects reference. Yeah, and I've I've found one thing as too is when I'm reading a book, I always want to build what I'm reading. Yeah. So I've decided now it's uh, I try and limit myself to reading only about what I'm currently building, so I don't stray. Yeah. <laughs> so. so you say you have two dioramas going at any one time. Yeah. Is there is there a reason for that? Well, um, yeah, I usually, uh, basically I'm lazy. So I, I like, I like to, uh, I like to combine my painting sessions. So I spray the same colors at the same time on the uh, two different models. Gotcha. So the ones I just finished, for example, were a pair of JVD8s. One was a, uh, one, a JVD8A4 at the end of the war that's kind of blown up in pieces and it's scattered about, but there's some GIs posing on it for a photo to send home. And the other one is a, um, a JU-88A5 that ditched in the water just off the shore of Britain in May of 41. But they both have 70-71-65 camouflage. So I thought, well, I want to do both of these, and I can combine the painting for both. So it's usually um, I'll pick two subjects that require very similar paint schemes and uh, or similar models, like the, like the 109Es, the Battle of Britain dioramas. I can build two cockpits at the same time. I can build uh, uh, two sets of landing gear and, and, and it just makes things more efficient and quicker. And What's your process and technique for groundwork? Because again, that's where I think most 72nd scale dioramas fail is that 
in 70-second scale, the groundwork doesn't tend to look, for want of a better term, realistic. It looks mm-hmm. either toy-like or over-exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Or, and, and you've now, maybe it's because you work from photographs, so you know what the you're you're trying to model an actual scene, but it seems like your groundwork comes off really, really well. And I'm wondering if there's any particular insight you've got into that. Well, thanks. Um, I got my well, most of the groundwork I started with uh, of course Shep Payne's How to Build Dioramas book and his like we all did back then is like his descriptions of um, how he would approach groundwork and and the idea that um, your groundwork you should put as much effort into the making it as real as the model itself that it that that it has a backdrop for and I think that's a mistake a lot of modelers do is is the groundwork is an afterthought and they kind of kind of rush through it and sometimes it's 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 maybe more than they can chew or, or it's it's too big you have a model in a big scene and it's a lot of time but um, just treat the groundwork um, just like you treat the model. It's just treat it uh, like you want to get the details right and just take your time with it. And like the two JWD8 dioramas I was doing, uh, they're both done now, but the main challenges on those, one was trees. Trees is a big challenge. And this has a backdrop of these tall deciduous trees. So that was kind of getting, but it took a long time to experiment with how to get the trees to look right. And again, like a third of my time is almost spent just experimenting and trying techniques, painting or building or uh, trees in that case. So, but yeah, it's just, just treat the groundwork like you treat the model and just put as much effort and time and, and uh, don't let it take a second stage to the model itself. Just, uh, so that's kind of the technique I use. So what technique did you finally settle on for the trees? Well, I went to Michael's and they have a kind of a floral department there which these kind of dried flowers and things. And I looked for something that was close to the scale I wanted with the kind of branch arrangements and, and things. So I found something close. So I bought that. And of course I'm standing behind all the blue la- blue hairs in line and <laughs> with my, with my floral arrangements. And <laughs> so, but, so I get it home and I get a kind of a, kind of a, a scant look from my wife when I bring it in the door, but that's all right. And uh, so, but, I chopped it up and then took off the the foliage on it because that was way out of scale and just left with the branches. And then I would take branches off other ones and kind of uh, glue them in so I get more of a dense branch arrangement. And then I would take um, uh, a lot of herbs and things like uh, oregano and uh, um, other uh, crumbled dry flowers and things and and get a a dish of uh, diluted white glue and kind of dip the branches in there and then dip it into the oregano and the rest of it and kind of do that over and over and you kind of build it up that way. And then the last technique I used on this one was to take some of that um, that ground foam and you can, uh, again, take it and dip it into the diluted white glue and then put the, the foam on top of that. And, <clears throat> and then once they're settled and you're kind of happy with the way they look, then you'd airbrush them from below with a very, very black green and from above with a, uh, a lighter greens and kind of build it up that way and the, the trunks with the grays and things. So, But it took a while to, to kind of figure out how to get them to look halfway decent. So I can send you some photos of those too. But. Oh, I'd like to see them. 
You said you've done 26 different aircraft dioramas. First of all, I'm impressed that you know that number off the top of your head. (laughs) Do you have a favorite one that you thought came out particularly well? Um, Yeah, I got several favorites and then some that I think are, you know, they're okay. But um, uh, I do like the JU-52 one you mentioned. And uh, I did another one that I got out of... uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Luftwaffe in Focus series. Oh, yeah. German, German language. And there was a um, an HE-111 that had uh, kind of bellied in behind Russian lines, and they'd gotten out, and then they set fire to it afterward. But there's a, a series of photos that kind of document that. Uh, I did that one, and I kind of like that one, too, because I got to experiment with some chipping fluid and and uh, temporary white camouflage and the weathering and all that was kind of fun. So. I don't think I've ever seen that one. I'll have to see it. Yeah, I can send you photos of that, too, if you want. So Now, you mentioned an interest in 70-second scale armor. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done a diorama, a vehicle diorama, rather than an aircraft-centered diorama? No, I didn't. But I did, I think it was, I brought it to Omaha in, I think it was 2017. I did a 70-second uh, um, scale uh, trench battle diorama. But uh, it was with the French, uh, the French and Germans. Yeah. Okay. I was at Omaha. I don't remember that. Maybe I missed it. I'll have to go back and look through my photographs because I try and photograph nearly everything. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say I do. Um, I just finished a, a German. Was it World War One A seven V in seventy second from that that horrible old M kit oh. <laughs> and uh, Tigers and Panthers, and I've done a. Um, another one, uh, what, what was the other? Opal Blitz in the winter uh, being pushed out of the mud, 72nd. That was another one. I think I brought that to Omaha too. But Well, that raises another question for me that I'm meant to mention. Your figures, where do you get, you know, 72nd scale figures are notoriously. Awful. Uh, well, okay. All right. You know, I was going to, I was reaching for something diplomatic. Yeah. Let's, let's be honest here. Awful. I think the, yeah, the raw material that we have to work with is awful. I mean, I've seen a lot of modelers do great jobs with it, but it's nobody makes it 35th scale or 32nd scale. Or, I mean, there's just the, the selections are endless and they're really excellent. But you get down to 72nd scale and they all look like hobbits. I mean, they all have, <laughs> they've got really strange anatomy and they've got these short legs and these long torsos. And so early on, early on, I figured, well, I've got to, I got to pose these guys to match the the people in the photographs. So I wanted something that was hard plastic and something that would came with maybe the pieces already separate, like the arms and the torsos and the heads and the legs. So I settled on uh, Prizer makes uh, some really excellent and very anatomically correct figures in 72nd scale. Although I'm not sure if Prizer is still producing because they seem to have fallen off the face of the earth lately, but so I use those torsos and those heads, and I'll I'll put them together and pose them, and insert wedges and cut arms and reposition them, and then once I get the pose that matches the photo, <clears throat> then I'll take the ep- epoxy sculpt, that two-part epoxy uh, material, and you can kind of infill and strengthen, and and then you can use that also to kind of layer on uniform details and. And uh, but the prizer has really good faces and really good anatomy, so that's that's the starting point I use. 
Well, they come out really well. Yeah, I agree with you. The in general, uh, seventy second scale figures, they're either anemically thin or cartoonishly thick, mm-hmm. and and it just ruins the proportion. So yeah. even if you do a really good job with the figure, you put it next to the to the aircraft or the piece of armor or whatever, and it detra- ends up detracting from the overall presentation simply because it looks for want of a better term silly right that that kind of goes back to what i was saying before is like when you have uh three components of a diorama you've usually got the subject model itself and then you've got the groundwork and then you've got the figures that support it all and those three things i think you have to pay attention to all three the same to the same uh extent well we've talked about that before dave and then you know this 35th scale, this anti-tank gun I'm working on, back to something you said earlier is, and and from the Shep Payne book, as you mentioned, is it's a, you, you need to at least attempt to put the same amount of time and effort into to those other things as the model, else it's just going to come up short. And th- that's a lot of work. If you put a lot of time into the model, sometimes I think that's a where a lot of things fall apart for a lot of modelers is that uh, they get, they get to a point where they're done mentally probably mm-hmm. and they've, they've got this display this, this, this last hurdle to, to get across and they just kind of phone it in, if you will. Yeah. That's a good point, Mike. I, I've seen a lot of really excellent models on bases that kind of detract from the excellent model. Yeah, I agree. And you, again, you'd almost better leaving it off and just displaying the model on a straight black base or a mirror or whatever, because if, if you don't have that follow through and I'm guilty of that myself, that, that it really, it really lessens it. One, one other area where your models stand out to me is you, you have done any number of battle damaged aircraft. Mm. And that's another thing like 72nd scale groundwork that I think is hard to pull off well, have it not look cartoonish, like a, like the old ICM kit, the, the old ICM battle damage kit. Oh, sure. Or, you yeah. remember those. The jets, yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, now, obviously, photo reference is part of it for you. Do you actually go and look at the structure the internal structure of the prototype aircraft? Well, I do. If I have, if I have to open it up and expose something, I've got enough reference material that I can see what the internal structure is. Like the, uh, like a lot of the, uh, what is those, uh, Alliant publications or the, uh, but something that has, that shows the internal structure. And so, yeah, you can go with that, but the battle damage is still something I think I need to improve on. And I'm still working on that. I've got a few ideas for other ones I want to do, but all right. Just if, if it's not telling sco- secrets out of school, what are, what are a couple of ideas you've got? I'm interested. Mm. You got me hooked. Oh, well, it's sometimes also like, sometimes I see some um, Japanese aircraft. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, uh, meatballs and dead birds. Dead bird. From where I'm sitting, I can take one step, <laughs> reach back, and I would have that book in my hand. It's in oh. my Japan in my Japan section of the oh, library. What a, what a great book that is! Oh, it's although if you look, I'm I'm a huge World War II Japanese aircraft mm-hmm. fan, 
And those are some of the saddest pictures. Oh. <laughs> just just from the standpoint, you look at how many of them that there is no existing prototype aircraft anywhere in the left, anywhere in the world. Oh, you see the, all these Nels just uh, bulldozed together and burned. And it's just, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But there's a, there's a lot of photos in there I would like to do, but the um, the battle damage on them, or just the the damage from being neglected or blown up, or what. Sometimes it's when I pick a, a blown up subject, I always pick one that I think I can model without too much difficulty. But there's some that I really want to do that are just really extensive damage, and I think it would turn out to be more battle damage than model sometimes, but gotcha. there's some great photos in that book that I'd really like to dive into sometime. Yeah. I, I think, it, listen, I think if you could pull and if there is anybody around who could do it, you could pull off a diorama of one of those. And there are similar photographs at the end of world war two in Germany of these pushed together piles of, you know, and you're almost looking at the photograph trying to pick out exactly what aircraft, all of them that you can see. Right. And sometimes it's really surprising you catch something in there that's like, you know, that that isn't a common item. Really rare, yeah. Yes. And here they're just burning it or something. Yeah. <laughs> but Again, tear, tears at your... Uh, oh. Tear, tears at your heart just from yeah. hope at wishing that we had a prototype of, of one of those things. Mm-hmm. So let me go back. Just you, you, you mentioned offhand that you have the interest in world war one and I've seen your world war one work or at least the 35th scale world war one work. Do you almost exclusively do figures or do you do much in the way I know you said you did the 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 German A seven V. Do you do much with artillery? Do you do do much in thirty fifth scale World War One stuff? Or well, is that not so much anymore? I think the last thirty fifth scale uh, World War One figures I did was probably ten or twelve years ago, and um, now my World War One modeling is pretty much confined to seventy second scale aircraft, and I'm working on a pair right now. One's a vacuform, uh, <laughs> which is and yeah, that's another episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's it. It just the the hardest part is getting started, but. Just cutting those pieces out and getting the trailing edges on the wings just started just takes a lot of willpower. But <laughs> that one and then the um, uh, a Roden uh, Albatross W4 and a Sierra Scale um, Hansa Brandenburg C1, it's a two-seater. But I just got an itch to build those, and I thought, well, why not? I'll do that. After the JVD8 dioramas, I thought, I, thought I'd tackle those. But now this new I, IBG... Uh, 72nd scale 190 D9 kit comes out. Oh my gosh. And I I ordered four of those things and I want to build that now too. So, did you see they just announced a double kit? Oh, I didn't see the double kit. I saw they're going to do a few others with the same tools, but yeah, I I can't wait. I'm I'm about to get my hands on one of them. If, If what I have seen on 72nd scale aircraft forum is any indication, these things are a generational step up in mm-hmm. 72nd scale aircraft. Oh, they're so nice looking. It's just, yeah, it's, it's. And who doesn't love a 190D? They're just 
they're very attractive aircraft. Yeah, we needed one for a long time and desperately. So I got four of them. So I <laughs> so four. Of them. Well, it's funny you mentioned Sierra Scale. Sierra Scale was made here in Louisville. The guy was a member of our club for years and years. Really? Yes. Okay, I met him at one of the nationals once. A real nice guy and Yes. Yeah. Yep. So, and I I think he stopped doing them a number of years ago, but I'm not sure. But uh I am a 72nd scale fan. You, If you listen to the podcast, you will hear me refer to it as God's one true scale. Mm-hmm. But I am also here to admit that World War I aircraft ought to be done in 32nd scale because I don't see how people <laughs> model 72nd scale World War I aircraft. I mean, that that to me is just beyond comprehension. Well, it's it's really a shame that that wing nuts has gone by the wayside too. And yeah. I'd listen I'd listen to the uh, the on on the bench guys. I, I listened to uh, uh, Dave, Ian, and Julian all the time yeah. too. And and it was it was almost painful to listen to those guys when the wing nuts went under, and because just you could hear the despair in their voices yeah. and just absolutely. Although there is the, the, some things seem to be kicking around in China, which make me wonder whether or not. Either voluntarily or not, we may see other of that stuff come out, leak out one way or another. I'll be interested to see how that develops. Yeah. Well, it's not my scale, but I sure hope they do. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of Dave, Ian, and Julian, they're going to be in Omaha. Are you? Um, yeah, I'll be there, and I hope to see you guys and them. I, I've really enjoyed all the podcasts. With those are the two I've listened to: is you guys and and uh, on the bench. And yeah, so. well, uh, we're we definitely are looking forward to Omaha, and can't wait to can't wait to to see what you bring. Uh, can't wait to actually talk with you in person, other than to say, "Hey, I really like your model." Yeah, <laughs> you probably you know, say of, that too. I yeah, probably well, am going to say that too, but you know, you know, one of your one of your Mojo podcasts that I actually enjoyed the most is when uh, I think Mike was talking to the author of that T thirty four book, the new one. Yeah, T thirty four shot. Yeah, it's it's not a subject I'm into, but it almost made me want to build T thirty fours. It was such a good uh, a good exchange between you guys. It was a lot of fun to listen to that one. Yeah, if you get Mike talking about T thirty fours, I'm telling you, you, first of all, you're going to learn a whole lot, and especially talking to somebody like that. Those two authors obviously also had a love, but uh, I actually have a seventy second scale T thirty four eighty five about. 75% done. So Ooh, yeah, I know, okay. know exactly what you're talking about. Well, you're getting, you're getting advice from Mike on that. I hope, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His advice is stop, stop dinking around and build it. Okay. Uh, no, I don't ever give that advice. I, <laughs> I dink or I dink around plenty. Did, did you ever find a proper catapult for your Paul? I don't think there is one. Oh, so that's, we're just going to ignore that for this for my first catapult, we're just going to take what we nobody's, got. Nobody's going to know. Just go with it. Yeah. Uh, but but my uh, my Arado 196 is going to be on a catapult, on a turret. Oh, okay. So uh, I got that one to work through. Which kit are you using for that one? Uh, I've got the Heller kit in the stash, and I've got a sword kit in the stash, too. Okay. So, Great. Seen a lot of these 72nd scale uh, battleship turrets and cruiser turrets coming out. That looks like a lot of fun. I, I, well, we'll see if it's a lot of fun. So, <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, but Mike Mike is 
uh, as you know, uh, engineer by trade, and he's playing around with 3D printing a lot. So yeah. I expect at some point he's going to start 3D printing catapults. Well, why not? That's you know I've got a, a Japanese what is it E fourteen Y Glen yes and, and that's a Fujimi kit that comes with a catapult yes I'm not it's probably not the one you're looking for though <laughs> no I think that's the same catapult they put with all their kits yes it's, I, it's, I, it's it's a a fair representation of an earlier catapult that that plane probably was launched from. No. Uh, I, I guess with my project, the uh, the ships that were converted to the the, the hybrid carrier battleship configuration, you know, when they were battleships, they had that catapult on them. But when they refitted the ships to to handle the E-16s and some other planes, they put a new catapult on it. And there's just no documentation. Yeah, I think I heard you mention that it's a it's a later war plane. Of course, the Paul is, and and uh, it's it was only used on one ship or something. Or? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that so, makes yep. it harder. <laughs> well, it, it, I, I don't know why you, you get back to, you know, all those photographs of all the, the Japanese planes pushed up in piles and burned. I, I don't know if, if the versus the the technology that was coming out of the Luftwaffe at the time, if it was just behind the times by that stage of the war and the planes were of little interest to the Allies mm-hmm. fundamentally. And also the 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 logistics of getting those back from that theater of the war versus the European theater of war and all the other commitments those ships ships had because it was yeah. such, a, such a much greater distance that uh, it just wasn't something they did. And yeah, a, a lot I, of stuff was lost. I think yeah. you're right. And we were, we were pushing our own planes off of carrier decks because we didn't want to bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are a couple of Pacific islands that, uh, you know, you can do excellent dives now and find all sorts of stuff that just got pushed off because it was it wasn't wasn't worth bringing back, even though it was relatively new. Yeah, that's that's another uh, some photos my dad took. He was a, a radar operator on Guam um, in forty four and forty five. He operated a radar site that guided crippled bombers back from Japan. Yeah. But he took a lot of photos, and he's got a series of photos of these Japanese midget submarines that they had mounted up on shore. So I might want to do one of those sometime. Too. Oh, <laughs> I would, I would love to see those because the yeah. Japanese midget subs, the Type A's, and the Kitans uh, are one of my one of my areas of interest. I, I really, I've, I've built the Kitan from the fine molds kit, and I would like to do the Type A. Oh yeah. Well, Steve, what are what's on the bench right now? That's that's close to the finish line. Um, well, I've got two. I'm in, in the painting right now: the the Sierra Scale Hansa Brandenburg C1 and the uh, the Roden Elatros W4. And I'm experimenting with some different uh, clear linen techniques. I want to because uh, both have clear linen wings and wood fuselages. So I want to kind of experiment with different ways to do the wood grains and different ways to do the the clear linen wings where you can kind of, it's kind of showing through from above a little bit. Right. I want to experiment with something like that. Hey, so. Are you familiar with a guy who's also an architect, by the way, named Mark Smith out of Cleveland or uh, Akron, Ohio? Um, I don't think so. Though. He, he did a, a 48th or 32nd scale Taub, and he did one other World War One aircraft where he did exactly that technique where he painted 
and made it look like linen that you could mm-hmm. see through and you could see the markings that had been painted on the underside of the wing below it. Oh and, yeah. And he did it's it's just amazing modeling. And again I said to architects I think uh like and like Mike and engineers have a special uh, affinity to modeling because they're so detail oriented. Yeah, it's it's called anal retentiveness. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't. I, I think so. I wasn't going to say that, but yeah, okay. I or obsessive compulsive disorder. Oh. That's what, so, or a combination. Well, there's there, the old right? Renoir arrow skin. Oh, God. oh boy. Oh, uh, shutter. <laughs> I remember those too when they were on the shelf at the back when even drugstores used to sell kits. But, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. Great, great box art. Yeah, yeah. oh, they were. Yeah. Well, great box, too, because those things weren't in a rectangular. Well, they had a, like a wedge-shaped side on them, didn't they? They did, yeah, oddly enough. And- well, Steve, I've got to say, actually getting to talk to you has been really enjoyable. Um, I, I, I got to say, uh, I will tell you that I wanted to hate you, when, when, especially after I saw that uh, German machine gun diorama. It's like nobody <laughs> should be this talented at this wide across section of modeling. So there's, there was a part of me that hoped that you were a really bad guy so that at least I could say, well, fine, at least, at least, at least I could say, but like almost every really, really good modeler. I know you're a really nice person, really willing to share what they know and what they've learned. And, yeah, that that is one of the things that I really have encountered in the hobby is generally people who are really, really good at it are also, despite my occasional hope otherwise, really, really nice people. <laughs> so. well, that's been my, that's been my experience too. Is it's a, it's a terrific hobby, and and uh, my best friends I've met in the hobby, and um, the guy that was kind of pushing me toward you, uh, Mark Copen, is a good friend of mine, and uh, he's in the president of our local IPMS club here, it's Twin City Aero Historians. And uh, it's, uh, it's, but it's, it's such a great hobby and I've met so many good people. And I want to thank you guys too um, for putting together such a great uh, podcast. It's uh, gone so many episodes now and it's been a lot of fun to listen to all the way through. Well, good. I'm glad you enjoy it. We, we listen, if, if Mike hadn't encouraged me to do this, then I wouldn't have ever gotten to actually talk to you and actually share this information. And I'll I'll tell you, you've been, your models are ones that every time I've seen them at, at shows and now thanks to social media online, I've always found inspiring. So uh, it's nice to actually stop and talk with you. Okay. Well, thanks. That's nice to say that. You're well, right. and I've, I've got some tips too, because Dave's, well, I've got my little float plane thing going on, but it is 72nd mm-hmm. scale. Uh, boy, And I'm, I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to stay there because it just gets, as an engineer, the detail gets more involved as you get bigger and you know where that goes. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I already have trouble finishing, but. Uh, now is uh, the Paul done? I mean, except for the catapult. To, to report on that in this part of the, of the show, I guess the aircraft is is mostly assembled and primed. So it's near paint stage. Uh, the catapults assembled 
about 70%. No, it's more than that. Probably 85, 90%. I've left a side off of it so I can rig the, the pulley system before mm-hmm. I close it all up and paint it. So okay. uh, it won't take that long. I don't think to finish that one up once I get it, but uh, um, you know, I'm learning. I haven't built an, an aircraft in, in a long, long time. That's the first one in, in, decades really for me but uh no i've got that kit too and i've pulled it out every now and then but i don't know how to tackle those perforated um uh air brakes yeah the air brakes how'd you how'd you handle that mike tell him i photo etched those myself you did i did so uh let me find the artwork and uh fire up my ferret chloride bath and uh maybe come omaha i'll, I'll have some for you and, and you can you can get on down that road a little ways because that's Boy, really the only way to do it it is <laughs> well you did it right yeah yeah and if you, it's one of those things that if you don't do something about that it just doesn't look right well that's that's what i thought and that's why i was curious how you handled that and it sounds like you did it right so well, I'm you sure saw the same thing i did every photograph you see of those things you can see daylight through those things that's right yeah, <laughs> I, I wish I knew how they opened. I, I, I have, I have a, an engineering hunch as how they did that, but I I don't really know. But uh, I bet that was something to see with those things butterflied out. On well, the, there'll on be the, there'll be a big reference come out on that just as soon as you finish the model. So <laughs> that's uh, that's absolutely <laughs> true. I don't know. I think that's one of those planes that's lost to time. Oh, it yeah. is. But uh, yeah, some some Japanese uh, aircraft, World War II aircraft mechanic will have photographs that are stuck <laughs> in a trunk somewhere, and he'll pass away, and his family will find them and publish them immediately after you finish the model. That's the way it works. Well, Dave, I think we're going to have to have some gin at the Mojo Dojo in, I think uh, so. in uh, Omaha yeah. just to get Steve to stop by the room one evening and, and uh, continue this conversation. Oh, I'd certainly love that. Yeah. I can promise him if he stops by the the Mojo Dojo, we will uh, we'll have a martini for him. <laughs> Are you an olive guy, an onion guy, and what's your, what's your take on vermouth? Um, either, well, usually martini, not Rossi, dry vermouth, but... Um, we usually use, uh, either olives or, uh, pickled mushrooms. We like too. those are good. Oh, cool. And dirty but, or, or clean. Um, either way. I'm not okay. picky, especially when you get to the second or third one, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, Mike, I think Steve, Steve's going to fit in. <laughs> Shake, shaken or stirred. Uh, well, we, I do them on the rocks, so I'm not a, okay. uh, my wife doesn't just, <laughs> she does a straight up when I do them on the rocks. So I'm just, I'm not pure. <laughs> Gotcha. Well, Steve, thank you for, for agreeing to come on the show. And we've had a, a real good time talking to you and uh, look forward to meeting you face to face in Omaha. Cause uh, all your dioramas are incredible given the scale, especially and b- because I'm dabbling in that scale as well and have some interest in using, incorporating figures into, into what I'm doing in that scale, maybe not mm-hmm. full blown dioramas, but uh, certainly pilot and a, and a crewman on a catapult would not be an unusual situation uh, just to show the scale of the thing. Oh yeah. Got a lot of questions, more questions. I'm sure I'll think of by the time uh, the nationals rolls around. So thank you. Thank you again. Well, you got my contact info, so feel free to contact me with anytime you want. Dave, you got anything else to say? Nope. That's it. Well, Dave, that was a nice conversation with Steve, and I think uh, he's going to be a guest again. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to do it again because, you know, that was an hour and uh, or 55 minutes, and 
I didn't begin to scratch the surface of many of the questions that I've got. So, uh, yeah, we're definitely going to have to do that again. Well, that, that'll be our Steve Husted primer. And, you know, with my dabbling in 72nd scale aircraft, there's some things in his dioramas that I, I'm interested in his take on and his, his uh, techniques, uh, not just water, yeah, but uh, his figures and, and, and things like that. So, uh, yeah. you know, I guess we'll see him in Omaha. Yep. We're going to have to sit down and talk to him. And uh, I'm assuming we will see him bring his Battle of Britain 109s uh, dioramas to the to the show, and I I really am looking forward to seeing those in person. Yeah, me too. That's really impressive stuff. So. Yeah, thanks for Steve for coming on. Absolutely, thank you very much. Hope to do it again. We've gotten to the end of the episode, Mike. So I assume that means that you can see the bottom of your model fluid glass. Well, I could till I refilled it. Now I'm about oh, okay. halfway there again. Okay, so. you don't, you don't, you don't have to reveal all of our secrets when we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a rye. Tell me, what did you think? It's a rye. It's not a bourbon. It's ninety proof. It's spicy as you expect from a rye. Yeah. Which bullet bourbon is spicy because it is, has about the highest amount of rye you can have in the mash bill and still be a bourbon. Right. But that's, we're not talking about bullet. We're talking about uh, this particular rye. Uh, almost like cinnamon, but it just doesn't quite cross that kind of, I don't know what to say. It's not cinnamon, but it's kind of spicy like cinnamon. It's a little hot, but it's got a lot of flavor. And it, it's got a really, got a really leathery nose to it at the front end, even on, well, it's got, it's got a leathery nose to it and a little leather on the front end, which I'm starting to like a little bit. Really? I think this is good. I think it's it's better cut with a little water or a little ice than it is neat. That's my opinion. But mm-hmm. uh, well, I think that's true of most rye. I'll be honest with you, because I my impression of rye is that they tend to be a little. I don't want to say hotter because they're not any any uh, the alcohol content's really not any greater than a lot of bourbons, but they present as hotter. And that might be the spice you're referring to. It probably is. Again, Last Feather Rye Whiskey from Journeyman Distillery. And Journeyman Distillery is in Three Oaks, Michigan. All right. Not bad. Well, how's your beer, Dave? My beer is not bad. It's, <laughs> it, is, it is not a craft brew. It is not something that I would choose as my everyday go-to beer. But for a mass market beer or relatively mass market, it's it's a good drink. It's uh, it's got more body than something like a traditional American Bud, PBR, Miller, etc. But it does still seem watery compared to craft beers. It doesn't have as much body as a craft beer. Uh, it's a four point five percent alcohol by volume. So you really don't get the alcohol presentation uh, like you would with a with a stronger craft beer, but it's it's relaxing and drinkable. So yeah, definitely drinkable. In my history, well, my post twenty one year old history, I have been witness to three markets where Yunling was introduced. 
And the hype is always, oh, we're getting Yuling. It's so awesome. It's great. Blah, blah, blah. It never lives up to the hype. Never. Yeah, I, I would, it's just I would, not that good. It's <laughs> I, I would agree. It's not compared to what we now enjoy from craft beer. Unremarkable. You're absolutely correct. Now, if you had, if you, you transport us all back to 1979, 1980, before the craft beer explosion, Yingling would be a beer that you would much prefer to any of the other readily available American water beers or American rice beers. I would agree with that, but uh... it's a victim of the fact that the brewer's art has just blown up since the 1980s. This is the end of the episode. So before we go, do you have any shout outs? I do, Dave. I've got some shout outs again. They're the recent additions to the ranks of the contributing to plastic model mojo. We have Mr. Steve Husted, which may prove that you can actually buy your way onto the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, in addition to Steve, we've got Mike Libero, Matt Dyer, Jeff Keenan, Ed Kawahara, J.G. Lou, and uh, Rock Rozak over at Detail and Scale. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for your contributions. It's much appreciated. Uh, it all goes, again, a long way to helping, you, helping us bring you Plastic Model Mojo. And uh, it's setting us up for some changes I keep alluding to, but I'm not quite ready to say just yet. But uh, uh, we're going to move to a new platform, I think, and uh, improve on this show. Uh, right. Hopefully markedly, but we'll see. And by and by platform, you mean back end. It's not. Anything oh, it's all back end. Yeah, it's right. It's end. not anything the folks up front will notice, other than maybe a more refined and quality product. Well, I will say though, it's going to bring us another format opportunity that uh, will be unique. Let's just say yes. that. Yeah. That we can't do now with uh, Zencaster. Gotcha. Uh, if you'd like to contribute to Plastic Model Mojo and would like to do so on a recurring basis, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Plastic Model Mojo, and you can set up a recurring contribution on a monthly basis of any amount you care to contribute. And uh, we much appreciate it. It's Folks who are willing to contribute is one thing, but those who step up and, and are willing to sign up for something indefinite every month, I, it's really humbling. I can't believe it. So. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. In addition, if you'd like to make a one-time donation or manage your own recurring contribution, you can do that at PlasticModelMojo.com. There's a heart icon in the upper right-hand corner of the screen that will take you directly to a PayPal link. And there you can go there once, twice, as many times as you like, and make a contribution there as well. So, guys, we'll see you in Omaha. We'll thank you in person if we can. It's Everybody's just so generous. Thank you. Thank you so much. Not anything that we ever thought would happen when That's, we started doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, my shout out is kind of related to our guests tonight. My shout out is to all of the men and women who put on IPMS national conventions. Because without people doing that, without people willing to, to step up, to devote their time to the actual putting on of the show, um, 
I wouldn't have ever had the opportunity to meet Steve and see his amazing models. Uh, you know, he lives in Minnesota. We don't go to the same model contests as far as regionally. So I would have never been exposed to his work were it not for people stepping up and putting on the national convention. The national convention's a lot of fun. The national convention I love. I've said it's the best four days of my year, year in and year out. And I think it's probably worth taking a moment to appreciate the people who do the hard work of making it happen each year. So thank you. And guys in Omaha know that we appreciate the work that you're putting in now that we're going to get the benefit of in late July. Is that the end of your shout outs, Dave? That's the end of my shout out. Well, that's the end of our episode too. All right. We got, uh, we got a good one here. Uh, you know what they say, Mike? So many kids. So little time, Dave. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Enjoy that.